This episode of the MGMA podcast is brought to you by Walmart Business. It's the Walmart you love, now for business. Get everything you need for your staff and patients in one place. Enjoy big savings on health and safety products, cleaning supplies, over-the-counter medications, and much more. And don't forget the break room snacks. Create a free account today and start shopping at business.walmart.com. That's business.walmart.com. Hello and welcome to the MGMA Insider Podcast. I'm Daniel Williams. We're joined today by Frank Cohen, Director of Analytics and Business Management at Doctors Management. Frank, thanks so much for joining our podcast today. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. Now, you've got an interesting story and journey in uh, healthcare, and if you could, please tell our listeners about that. Well, I mean, I, you know, I started off, um, I've always been fascinated with mathematics, and I thought I would uh, go to med school, become a doctor. That would be kind of a cool place to go for research, and, and uh, I ended up actually in the Navy. I became a hospital corpsman. Um, got some additional training um, as for a PA. And when I came out, I worked as a PA for several years. And the truth is, I really didn't enjoy clinical practice in the civilian life because it was just riddled with this whole concern about litigiousness and, and um, what you could and couldn't do, as opposed to the military where you just did what you had to do. So um, actually, while I was working with it, I, I got approached by someone I knew from a state agency where I was working to do some research with them. And I got into the research and that's, I just kind of fell in love with the whole idea of the research and statistics and, and what all that was about. And that was kind of the direction I was going anyway. So, so here I am, I don't know, 40 some years later. And uh, the majority of my work is in computational statistics, and it's almost all still exclusively in healthcare. Okay. Now, one of the areas that you are uh, passionate about is something that you call evidence-based thinking. And I just wanted to uh, hear your thoughts on that. What is evidence-based thinking? How do you define it? And I was looking around, noodling around on the internet, trying to look it up myself. Are, are we talking about that kind of thinking that goes all the way back to ancient Greece and Socrates, or what exactly are we talking about here? Well, I think the basic idea is, is this. It's about critical thinking, I think, is where a lot of it starts from. And there, there's actually been some very good articles out lately that talk about how we are failing miserably in our schools um, with regard to critical thinking for students. There's been different types of educational programs that have been introduced both on a national and a statewide basis that, that don't really um, encourage that um, in kids. And evidence-based thinking, as we go from critical thinking to evidence-based thinking, is basically the idea of making decisions and, and conducting our management operations based on the information that's available to us in the form of data uh, or in the form of other sources of information, but evidence that either supports or doesn't support what our theories are. I think that's an important part that people need to know is that a lot of times we 
we might want to get involved in a project or maybe we want to do capital improvement or bring on a physician or or make some changes to the emergency room and so you know we have this idea how we want to do it we go out looking for information evidence data to support our decisions but oftentimes the information we get is going to counter what we think we might be doing it's going to be what we might call counterintuitive it feels like it's going to work but the data doesn't support it and so critical thinking is our evidence-based thinking is this ability to um to consider situations based on other than just what it feels like because i think i told you this in the last interview but it's one of my wife's favorite expressions is feelings are feelings they're not facts right right i love that and uh that is true wisdom and so if i gave you a term like Frank, I've got a hunch that this is going to work. <laughs> How would you respond to that? Or maybe if I didn't do that, but let's say someone at a medical practice or a hospital told you that. What, what's your response to such a thing? Well, I think hunches are great and intuition is great. You know, in a medical practice, in any business, but let's stay with a hospital or a clinic or something like that. People that work there, especially for quite a long time, they build an experience base. And, you know, the old expression of it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And I'm of the opinion, if it looks like a duck and it walks like a duck, maybe do a DNA test or something, just to make sure that it is a duck. Because right. a lot of times things look one way, um, but they're not. But this idea of having a hunch or intuition, I think that it's a wonderful thing. Because what it should do is not lead us to the ultimate decision we make, but a hunch, as you put it, should lead us to the data that we need to acquire or the information that we need to get. It should point us in the direction that we want to go, and then we should rely upon the data in order to make those decisions. Now, the argument that I hear people say is that, the data is not always correct and that's true the data are not always correct but you know what neither are our hunches so um you know it's my opinion and my experience that data will get you to the positive outcome a whole lot faster and a whole lot more often than your hunches will right now you were talking earlier about childhood and education and so i wanted to ask you about that about your own childhood were you a critical thinker as a kid? I mean, the way you talk to me, I almost wonder if you were that kid in the classroom who was always raising your hand and challenging what the teacher was trying to present to the class. Was that you or give me an idea of that? Yeah, that was me. Um, and um, I think I was 10 years old when I fell in love with mathematics. Actually, some, it was in a class and it was a math teacher that introduced a Riemann's functional equation. Uh, this is the solving for the zeta s function which if someone were able to do that would be able to identify the exact location of all prime numbers to n and um uh, and this was this is what's called the, one of the millennial problems it's there's several of them that have never been solved this is a 300 year old theory or theorem that's never actually been proved unlike i think it was 1993 that they solved for Pythagorean's theorem, which was kind of cool. It was a, a researcher from uh, Princeton. Um, but, but this one never was. And I just, you know, it just 
struck me that way. So, you know, when I was a kid, if you those of you in your early 60s, you know that we were just considered problem children. Nowadays, they have actually ways to deal with kids that are a little more humane than they did back then. But, right. <laughs> but yes, that, that was me always wanting just, you know, show me proof or evidence of why you're saying that or else I'm not going to believe it. Right. You were talking earlier about uh, some a study you had seen where critical thinking was uh, down um, in, in the educational system. In that article or in that study, did it show that there is, is there currently a decline? Is critical thinking going down? Has it always been there for children? What's, what's going on there? Well, I mean, I don't know. I'm not an expert in education, right? But, but I think that what's happened is um, we've gotten, um, I, don't, I don't even know how to put it. I don't want to say open or accepting, whatever, but we've gotten less disciplined, I think, in, in areas that we expect our children to excel. You know, this is why the STEM program has become so popular. It stands for science, technology, education, and math. Um, and we're seeing more and more people are moving towards that direction. I think parents are recognizing that we've lost this discipline of critical thinking uh, in the schools. You know, I, I really think so. I know my kids, when they were growing up, I think they did more of it than what my grandkids are going through now. And I don't know why. I don't know what, there's probably politics behind it somewhere. But, you know, if you look at some of the state and national programs that are becoming standardized, I don't think they support critical thinking for kids. Right. Now, you had mentioned mathematics has been a love of yours for most of your life. Do, what does mathematics do to help people develop a critical mind to address a problem and, and go about it in a methodical fashion to look for a solution? Well, I, th I think if you spend time doing some research on the neurophysiology of the brain, which I think everybody should do to understand our brains better, the frontal lobe, particularly what's called the prefrontal cortex in the brain, is a really important part of who we are because that is where logic forms. And, and, and it doesn't really fully develop until probably 30 years old. And then once you reach 40, it starts to decline a little bit. And our abilities to solve complex problems begins to go down. And you know, what's interesting is when's the last time you saw a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old chess grandmaster, you know, the chess champion. You don't. Mm -hmm. They're 18, 19 years old. Um, um, what's his name? Magnus Carlsen, I think, was 15 when he became the champion, the grand champion for chess. And, and I think that doing things like that builds our ability to become more engaged in critical thinking. We want to develop that frontal lobe of the brain. If we had time, I would spend the whole time here talking about the health benefits and eating right and exercise and staying away from, you know, caffeine and nicotine and alcohol and drugs, those things that which, which diminish the blood flow to that portion of the brain. I am very careful about, you know, what I eat and what I put in my body because I think that our brain's ability to, um, to develop properly is really important for this area, you know? So yes, I've always been into it. And, you know, if I gave the advice I give to my kids and my grandkids is, 
you know, what you feed yourself, feed your brain. And you want to, you want to be cautious. So lots of fun things. I do a lot of chess analysis. I like to, every day I like to analyze one chess game. Uh, there's what's called three dimensional uh, work that we do that really builds that part, the complex uh, problem solving part of the brain, picking blueberries, which I do every day during, uh, from about mid April to mid May when they're in season down here or gardening or, you know, working on, puzzles or things like that so some of this probably is outside of the context of what you know what i will be talking about um at the conference but they're still very important points i think right no i i completely agree with you and you said something that was really interesting there that um many of the you know, champions in chess are, are younger they're in their teenage years early 20s and Many of our listeners are healthcare professionals and they're in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, own up. And uh, I wanted to ask you then, what can they do? What are, are there, you were, you were getting into it just a little bit there, but are there some, are there games, are there processes, are there things they can do to sharpen their critical minds? Well, yes, and, and again, Anything that you can do that, that works with what's called the plasticity or the ability for the brain to learn to build new uh, synapses is just great for everybody. You know, there's, there's this, when I first started studying a lot of the, the neurophysiology part, they said, oh, there's, there's you know, 100 billion uh, brain cells. And then the next time I was studying, they said, there's 300 billion brain cells. And then when you look at all the connections. There's a hundred trillion connections. And then it was, there's, you know, 500 trillion connections. Nobody knows. Nobody has any idea just how, you know, how capable the brain is. But so, for example, in addition to chess analysis, in order to increase this, people play, uh, what's it called? I've never played it, but it's that game where you have nine squares, you put the numbers. Oh, Sudoku? Sudoku, I've watched people play that. I think that's a great way to do it. Um, what I like to do is I, I do a lot of memorization stuff. So I'll take a deck of cards and I'll put them all down on the, the table and I'll turn them over once and then I'll memorize where the cards are. And I do it by sequences, memorizing rows, for example. I like to memorize license plates because it helps my brain to stay in touch with what I'm trying to do, which is to um, not succumb to being in my 60s and the types of problems that people my age and, uh, and beyond tend to run into if we're not exercising our brains regularly. Right. Uh, I'm fascinated by this topic as well. And one of the things that I've done or attempted to do is, is meditation to try to focus the mind. I don't know that if you've gotten into that much on your own, but I was listening to a, sort of a guided meditation yesterday, and the teacher was having the listeners get one raisin, one raisin, and eat it slowly, uh, feel the texture of it, the actual taste of it, rather than just shoveling food while you're also answering emails and maybe watching TV, you know, kind of sleepwalking through life, but becoming really aware of what you're doing and uh, what you're doing at that very moment. I, I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Have you engaged in any activities like that where you really 
focus in on some activity? Well, what I do is I listen to classical music and there is tons of research. And I, I wish, uh, again, I could just spend the whole afternoon talking about the research that's been done on this, but particularly classical music that is upbeat, Vivaldi's uh, Four Seasons or Bach's, um, um, what is it, the, the uh, Susa and the Marches and those types of upbeat classical um, music is amazing for the brain. It'll heal the brain if there's been damage done to it. And I probably listen to four, five hours a day of that. So, so I don't necessarily get into the meditation part. What I do is I like to have a lot of alone time. So I'll go out in the back here. I got a few acres and I'll just sit back there and relax or I'll, I'll get a fire going and just sit and watch it. So you need to have quiet time like that. So I, meditation is a good way uh, in order for the brain to be able to recover and rebuild. Sleep is another big one. As a matter of fact, one of the most amazing ones is drinking lots of water. People don't realize that I've seen some great um, functional MRIs that are done in what are called PECT scans, where even the beginning of mild dehydration, the, the frontal lobe of the brain, that prefrontal cortex in particular, you can lose as much as 40% of the blood supply to that. Simple things that we can do. Uh, to do that and, and solving problems, buying these books that have these word problems in them and solving those, I think are, are great. You know, I have several on my bookshelf and I like to look at them, you know, if, as much as I can, at least three, four times a week. Right. Now you had mentioned earlier that you are going to be speaking at an upcoming MGMA event, the data conference. Uh, tell our audience for a moment, what, what's going to be the focus of that and what can they expect to learn from that conversation? So um, I have just finished writing a new book. I hope to have it out by the time the data conference comes. Um, I don't know what the exact working title is going to be, but it's on critical thinking, evidence-based management. And that's what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be talking about why it is that we can't necessarily trust what we see or what we hear or what our intuition or our hunches are all the time. It, it, it's just fascinating if you look at things like illusory work, magicians and how they work with sleight of hand or uh, optical illusions. And even when we know, this is the amazing part, and, and I'll demonstrate this at the conference. I'm gonna put some optical illusions up there. Even when we know exactly how they work and how they fool us, they still fool us. It's just incredible. You can look at it and go, wait a minute, I know exactly how this works, but it's still messing my head up. And, and so I'm going to talk about that and then talk about the evidence and the data and where we get it from and how to tell whether data are of any value or not and you know, what some of the risks are. Um, when you have too much, when you don't have enough, how can you tell? A lot of areas that focus on the evidence. Yeah, I know that one of your areas of expertise is benchmarking and, and testing data. And that's something that I wanted to ask you about. How do you trust the data? You know, you have the data in front of you, you're analyzing it, you're trying to figure it out, make sense of it, but how do you trust it? What's, what's the process or the metrics and measurements that you use so you know that to the best of your ability, you can feel good about uh, what that data actually says? You know, that's a great question because a couple years ago, um, I think we were in Baltimore at 
No, well, actually, I don't know where it was, but it was the Joint Statistical Meeting of the American Statistical Association. And I am a member, and I go to these conferences every year. And, and when we had this conference, the biggest issue, what all the keynote speakers were talking about, is this crisis we have in, in the field of statistics, in research right now, and a lot of it was in healthcare, is the inability to replicate studies. And part of the reason is because there's so much pressure, particularly in academia, for people to produce these studies that they're fudging on them, you know? They're not using good statistics or, or good research techniques to do it. And then the next researcher tries to replicate it and they can't. And then the question is, can I trust that study? And many times the answer is no. As a matter of fact, I think I read um, or one of the speakers was talking about this, that upwards of 70 plus percent of these studies can't be replicated. And that's just unacceptable. We can't do that. There's something called asymmetry of information. So let's say you go to, this is, a, I think, an interesting example. You go to a show, you know, a conference, right? MGMA National Conference, and they have hundreds of vendors there. A lot of those vendors are selling, let's say, uh, EHR systems, right? If you go to those vendors, every single vendor will be able to produce data that supports that their EHR is the best. But the fact is they can't all be the best. So asymmetry of information basically says that of the majority of the information data that are out there, the people that produce those data, unless they're completely independent, many times like the government databases and whatnot, which they don't have any skin in the game per se, you have to be wary of the fact that the, the people that are producing the data are trying to influence you potentially to make a decision based on what they want that decision to be. So a lot of this is just realizing that in fact that's true. So one of the big ways to do it is to look where the data come from. You know, this is one of the reasons I've really gotten to like, uh, and this isn't, I'm not, I don't have any financial interest in this, so there's no conflict here. But that's why I love Data Dive, MGMA's Data Dive. Because in the last few years, they actually show you things like variance. So you can calculate confidence intervals and then the number of providers in a sampler, the number of data points that are there. You can look at those things and, and have a better understanding of the value of the data. And I'll add one more thing to it. In almost every industry, middle managers have some basic understanding of statistics. And I have found that is not the case in healthcare. I have taught actually at some of the MGMA conferences. I've done conferences or pre-conferences or sessions on basic statistics for healthcare professionals or uh, pre-conferences on data and analytics because <laughs> It is incumbent upon anyone in management to have at least a basic understanding of those types of metrics. Because if you don't, you're not going to be able to tell whether data are good or bad. Right. And one thing that I found in researching this topic, uh, I believe it was from a Stanford study that in building evidence-based thinking and building evidence-based management, questions are important you because you can have the data in front of you but just as you're saying if you're not educated in that 
area or in the basic building blocks of statistics or mathematics, do you even know what questions you should be asking about it? And I wanted to ask you about that. What, what can you do to help people in a medical practice or in the healthcare field build a better foundation so they at least know what questions they should be asking? You know, I cover a little bit of it in the book, but obviously you can't do all of it. But there are, you know, courses you can take online through like Coursera and whatnot on basic statistics and probability and understanding those things. I'll give you an example. A lot of times what we're interested in are, are point estimates, in particular uh, midpoint estimates. So what's, you know, we use like an average a lot, but one should use an average and one should use the median, for example, instead. And does it make a difference? It makes a humongous difference, right? Because if the data are distributed in such a way, uh, they're non-normally distributed. Many times in healthcare, we have what's called hypergeometric geometric distributions. We have right skewed data all the time on RVUs, on, on charges, on payments, on RVUs, and uh, I probably said that, and, and other areas. And we have to understand why, if we're looking at central point estimates, why uh, an average, a mean, doesn't work, or say a median might work. We're, we're, we need to understand the variance, because a point estimate without variance, in my opinion, is, is worthless. The American Medical Association under the RBRBS Update Committee, they publish this time study every year. And, and these are the number of minutes, for example, that are used to um, estimate how long it takes a provider to perform a procedure. And what they have are point estimates, but they don't have variance. And so that makes it very difficult if you're using that for any type of research. So I might want to know, well, it might take on average 27 minutes for a physician to do this, but, but how long does it take a really experienced physician? Maybe nine minutes or eight minutes? And how long does it take a new doc or someone who's not used to that? 45, 50 minutes? So people need to be able to have a basic understanding of the basic statistical concepts that there are. Um, and if you don't, then much of what is involved in critical thinking and evidence-based decision-making isn't gonna work for you. Right, so let's apply this to a medical practice now. Let's see it in action. First, I want you to walk us through a scenario where a practice is presented with some type of problem and they go about trying to solve it without using evidence-based thinking. Okay, I'll give you a great example. Practices having all kinds of problems with patient backing up in the waiting room. The people are waiting too long, they're getting all kinds of angry and, and upset with the practice. Some patients walk out, the no-shows go up. Um, so, so what does the practice do? They say, well, we, maybe we need to hire another physician. So let's just hire another doctor and that'll fix the problem. Well, that would make sense, right? If you have a big backlog and you have all these patients waiting in the waiting room, if you have another physician, well, that physician can then see all those people. And I said, well, before we do that, why don't we do a little research? Let's do a, a patient flow study, right? Let's take a look at what it looks like when a patient calls in for that appointment and how long it takes to get that appointment, when they get there and what they have to do and how long they sit in that waiting room and what kind of paperwork is involved and, and how many patients are these physicians seeing and how long does it take for them to see it? All kinds of metrics and measurements that we want to look at. And we went through and make a long story short. We did all that analysis and what we basically found was that the problem wasn't 
that they didn't have um, enough physicians. The problem was that people were getting backed up at the front end of it, the check-in process, the mm-hmm. paperwork process is what was slowing it down because we had physicians that weren't seeing patients back to back. They had uh, sometimes a significant amount of time before another patient was ready for them to be seen. So they could go out and spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, hire another physician. And you know what that's going to do? It's going to make the problem worse. Why? Because they'll book more appointments and have more people waiting at that bottleneck at the front end. So we open that bottleneck up at the front end, and then we can do a better assessment evaluation of what's needed. And in the end, what they ended up doing was hiring a physician assistant for significantly less amount of money and solving some of the front end issues with um, paperwork and and you know, the initial patient forms and all that, and changing a bit of how the workflow worked on the front end side of it. And all of a sudden, they're seeing an extra $130,000, $140,000 worth of patient visits a year without having to add much of an expense at all. I love that example. That really uh, shines a light on the benefits of evidence-based thinking and, and doing the so to speak, due diligence on the, on the process and trying to figure out where the problem actually is. With that in mind, do you have any final thoughts on evidence-based thinking and any additional ways that it can help improve outcomes in a practice? Well, you know, you, you, you just said something that was really, really important to me, and that is, you know, identifying the problem. Mm-hmm. And part of it is identifying if there even is a problem. I've had this happen so many times. Um, I was actually working with, with this one large organization one time, and, and when I was, I was met with a CEO, and we were talking about things that went on there. And he said, oh, our patients love us. They come from all over the world. And I said, well, how do you know, you know, your patients love you? And he said, well, we have all these letters that they send saying how great we, job we did and how they appreciate it and we, we made their lives better. I said, well, how many letters do you have? You know? and, and he said, I don't know. I have like 20 or 30 letters in my office. I said, well, how many patient visits do you have a year? And he said, I don't know, something like you know, 26,000. I said, so 26,000 visits here and you have 30 letters and you think that defines how people think about you? What about the other 99.9% of all of these people that haven't written you a letter telling you that they love you? Do you have letters from people who are mad? He said, oh yeah, we get lots of those all the time. But, but we're not talking about those, you see? So the idea is that our intuition, our hunches, um, take us places sometimes we wanna go. They don't take us places we don't wanna go and the data takes us where we're supposed to go. And it's not always the place we wanna be. But I think the, we're, in a, we're in an industry that has a high degree of criticality in the decisions that we make, not just from a financial standpoint, but you know, quality issues in healthcare result in, in people getting injured or hurt. And, and those are things that are simply unacceptable. So I, I think that this idea that we can take any practical problem and we can convert it into an analytical problem is really important because once we start measuring things, not only in the front end to fix a problem, but in the back end to see whether or not that problem has has risen its you know ugly head again, becomes very important. So it's all about measurement. It's it's getting serious about the fact that we don't always we can't always trust what we think.
because our brains will play tricks on us. Yeah. Well, those were wonderful insights, Frank. I could talk to you all day, but we're going to sign off. Thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, I look forward to seeing you in Orlando. You got it. Thanks again to Frank Cohen, Director of Analytics and Business Management at Doctors Management. You can hear Frank speak live at the Data Conference on Thursday, May 16th. Thanks again for being an MGMA Insider. I'm Daniel Williams. The popular buzzword we've been seeing everywhere is AI. But what we all want to know is how we can implement and use it to our advantage. When it comes to improving margins, accelerating cash flow, and optimizing staff performance, there's a one-stop shop using cloud-based predictive analytics. MGMA Analytics is your AI-enabled tool that upscales technology you've already been paying for, so you can silo your disparate systems and make data-backed business decisions. Visit mgma.com analytics and see how AI can revolutionize your finances and operations. Again, visit mgma.com analytics today.